This week on Geek Explained, part three of X May 2022 takes us into the world of animation. As I'm joined by X fan and YouTube extraordinaire Patrick H. Willems to discuss the animated series that almost was. So join us as we take a deep dive into 1989's Pride of the X Men. <laughs> Welcome back to Geek Explained. I'm your host, Eric Kazana, and today's episode is part three of X May, our month long series dedicated to Marvel's Merry Mutants. We have gone through two weeks so far. The first week, we were joined by the Comic Book Couples Counseling Podcast to discuss the best couples in X Men history and last week we blew up that history with the comics collective podcast to rebuild our fantasy x-men teams for 2022 this week i am joined by someone who i've been a big fan of for a very long time patrick willems filmmaker youtuber all-around amazing dude to discuss one of my favorite adaptations of the X-Men, 1989's Pride of the X-Men, a beloved hidden gem and one of the building blocks in my fandom of the X-Men. We also have, of course, this week's Comics Countdown, where I chat you up about all the comics you should be picking up this week, so tune in for that after the jump. But for now, let's roll right on into the main event, the main course, the entree, if you will. One quick addendum, though, I was having some audio issues during the recording of this podcast, so forgive me, my audio does not sound great, but Patrick's audio sounds immaculate. Uh, I hope you enjoy the discussion. So without further ado, let's do a full retrospective on the Pride of the X-Men featuring Patrick H. Willems. In 1989, Marvel Productions was at a crossroads. After witnessing the decline of the first era of animated projects adapting Marvel characters, the company was keen to turn their fortunes around. To do this, they turned to one of their top franchises, the X-Men. After appearances in other animated projects, Marvel decided it was time for Marvel's Merry Mutants to stand alone in their first animated series. Thus, Pride of the X-Men was born. So what happened? 
Well, that is the question that hopefully we'll be able to answer in today's episode. This is part three of X-May, the month-long series dedicated to the X-Men. And this week we're talking Pride of the X-Men, the forgotten X-Men animated pilot that's not quite the X-Men animated series that it could have been. And this week I am joined by an excellent guest i am very excited to introduce to the podcast the youtube extraordinaire filmmaker in his own right and who i have coined the term the verbal scrooge mcduck we've got patrick willems on the podcast welcome to geek explained hey it's great to be here thanks for having me yeah i'm really excited to have you on the show and i'm really excited for us to talk about pride of the x-men yeah uh, uh... Something that I I can't remember exactly how old I was when I first saw it, but um, something that I, I have not watched in full since I was a child and yet remember very clearly. It really made an impression on me, I think. I feel like that's a lot of people. Like, I, I saw this. I actually had, like, the VHS of ah. this somehow when I was a kid. And I watched that, I think, probably like six or seven times as a child and then just did not watch it again for decades. Yet I can remember with certain clarity stuff that I could not remember like a week ago about my own life. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Like I didn't own the VHS, but my local video store had it. And so... I, I remember my local video store, it was not a blockbuster. It was like an you know independently owned just video rental store. And they had in the kids section like so many uh, just VHS tapes of like 60s Marvel shows, uh, you know, like the 60s Spider-Man and stuff like that, like like Thor, the Hulk, uh, like 80s Spider-Man, all of these things. And, you know, it would just be like a few episodes on a tape. And I would just rent them kind of like on rotation. And Pride of the X-Men was one of them. And uh, and yeah, I just I, I just watched it a, like a bunch of times, like to the point where to this day, I just periodically get the theme song stuck in my head. The oh, theme it's song, iconic. It, it is. Well, it, it's the thing is there is a more iconic X-Men cartoon theme song. Uh, th- oh, that one doesn't have lyrics. Uh, but yeah, every so often, this one just pops in there. So it again, it made an impression. Absolutely. And that that theme song, I will find myself humming at least once a week. It just happens. Like it's, it's one of those earworms that like will just stick in there every so often. And I think that's something to say about the staying power of this thing of pride of the X-Men, even though this was a one and done, but before we dive into pride of the X-Men itself, Patrick, I want to ask you, how were you introduced to the X-Men? Uh, as someone who grew up in the nineties, my X-Men origin story is the most <laughs> boring, like, like, like common story uh, you can get. I watched the cartoon on Fox Kids Saturday mornings <laughs> as a child. And it was a thing where, because I really started getting into comics and, and stuff like that, uh, or, I think in 1992. It was uh, when I was about four years old, my parents showed me the 1966 Batman movie. So I became obsessed with Batman and then comics and movies and stuff. And 92 happened to be the year that 
Batman Returns came out. Batman the Animated Series premiered on TV. So suddenly, I was all about Batman. And, and then that that spread into just comic book and superhero stuff in general. And I believe 92 was also the same year that the 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 X-Men show that actually went beyond the pilot stage <laughs> uh that that premiered and so there was just this sudden we think of the like you know the pre-2000s uh era as kind of like kind of like a like a dry period in terms of like comic book adaptations compared to what we have now right. but if you were a kid in in like around 1992 there was like there was a, a lot of stuff, and so I, yeah, I'm pretty sure it was the the '90s cartoon that was my intro, and then uh, and then in terms of the comics, uh, I I didn't start actually actively reading X Men comics other than picking up random issues until uh, 2000. Um, I I weirdly jumped in during the. Uh, Chris Claremont-led Revolution era, not thought of as like a high point in X-Men <laughs> comics, but really um, my, my per- like the X-Men era that really made a big impression on me was a year after the Claremont era uh, when Grant Morrison and Frank Quitely came in and new X-Men launched. And, you know, if you were like 12 years old when new X-Men number 114 comes out, it is probably the most mind-blowing comic you'll ever encounter. And so that was, like, the cartoon was what gave me, like, a fondness and just general, like, attachment to the X-Men, you know, in general. But uh, but it was really uh, new X-Men uh, starting in 2001 that, like, made me a fan. And I think that's that speaks to a lot of people who were kind of because because I'm in that same age range. I mean, when I was when I was a kid, it was all about the Saturday morning cartoons, and we were spoiled for choice when it came to a lot of like animated superhero stuff. Like we had Marvel shows, we had DC shows, and what I think a lot of people don't realize is that as good as that was, that wasn't the first time that Marvel had done this big expansive push into animation for their comic book properties. Yeah. It started in 1978 with fantastic four in the original, you know, Marvel productions era. Uh, We had shows like spider woman, spider man, and then spider man and his amazing friends, incredible Hulk. These were shows that, you know, definitely have not aged very well, but I mean, everybody, everybody, I think around like our age range and maybe even a little uh, younger as well. Like they know about Spider-Man and his amazing friends, even if they have never watched a single episode, they know the premise. Also genuinely such a funny premise for a show considering because like, wasn't Firestar created for that show? Yes. Yeah. So she was not like an existing character and, and just, I, I mean, looking, thinking back now, it's, kind of brilliant but pretty much just saying what if we basically just put spider-man in a sitcom premise where he lived in an apartment with two friends <laughs> yeah it's it's basically marvel real world or marvel yeah. like road rules right and uh yeah but also characters who are not uh, ever uh, normally associated with spider-man really yeah. really funny stuff and i do also just i have to 
you know, to mention since you brought it up as much as, cause you know, I mentioned theme songs earlier as much as, you know, everyone loves, uh, for good reason, the 60s Spider-Man theme song, you know, an all time banger, the eighties Spider-Man theme song, the very, <laughs> very synthy, very eighties one is underrated in my opinion. Totally agree. I mean, they, they were, if we want to include the theme song for Pride of the X-Men in this group, like they were knocking it out of the park with these theme songs in the eighties. They yeah. knew what they were about. Hardcore synth, lots of different levels. Like they, they had it, they had it unlocked for mm-hmm. what it came to musical intros to bring audiences into this world. And it being kind of this interconnected world as well with different characters popping up all over the place. The X-Men had popped up a couple times throughout. I mean, obviously, Spider-Man and his amazing friends. Spider-Man is teaming up with two mutants. And so they oftentimes ran into the X-Men, including the first appearance of our boy, Australian Wolverine. And it's really interesting when you think about what this accomplished building out this world giving us an animated version of our comics world that we had loved and yet when it came to like near the end of the 1980s they were kind of steering away from it they were diversifying their portfolio they had stuff like transformers and they had muppet babies and they had like the big one that was giving them some success robocop robocop the animated series because i glossed over i I mean in terms of like properties for kids when you think when you think what (laughs) what do kids love you think robocop you you think you go right to paul verhoeven films obviously obviously that that scene where they just absolutely turn this man into swiss cheese is very clearly rife for animated adaptation yeah And so they decided near the end of the 80s, Marvel Productions did, that they were going to try one more time. Most of the shows had been canceled or had reached a conclusion. And so they decided, okay, we're going to steal money from the RoboCop team that wanted to make a 13th episode of their series. And we're going to put it into something else. We're going to take a leap. We're going to try to throw an adaptation at, I think at the time, marvel's premier hitter the one that they had been going on for a while and that was the x-men of course um marvel's merry mutants the whole idea was these these teenagers with attitude were brought together by zordon to battle the forces of evil and the funny thing about it is that this x-men wasn't quite the x-men that we had started with right the x-men that we got the original five uh cyclops beast Iceman, angel and marvel girl didn't do super well for marvel when it first came out yeah i i, I mean th- that is uh, to me will always be a very funny thing just the fact that we we think of now as x-men as one of the pun intended juggernauts of you know <laughs> of like the marvel library but if they did the x-men did they be in was it 63 i want to say 63 or 64 yeah but it pretty much took 15 years or so to become really successful they were like you know practically canceled at some point like that yeah. the, the series switched to like bi-monthly because it this is like <laughs> 
the sales didn't justify releasing <laughs> one every month. And then like, uh, just the thing about like Chris Claremont was like a, I don't know, an early twenties, like assistant editor at Marvel and no one, and like no one wanted to write it. So they just handed it to him and, uh, and let him do whatever he wanted. And, and then just, and, and, and yeah, and it, it's like, the pre-Claremont, I shouldn't say pre-Claremont X-Men, pre-giant size X-Men. Because, yeah, like, Len sure. Wein and Dave Cockrum, obviously, do deserve a lot of credit for, like, setting up the team and introducing so many of the characters that, you know, are so beloved now. But it was a very different thing before that. It was not quite the, like you know, the the big, like, you know, sci-fi soap opera uh, that 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 we, we think of it as. It, um, it was kind of just, like, another team book. And, and yeah, uh, and, and so obviously any X-Men adaptation is pretty much going to pull from the, like, giant size era onward. Yeah, and Claremont being kind of the shepherd for the X-Men, I mean him taking that from around 1975 all the way to 1991 when we come to this period in time 1989 he's getting ready to head out it's not gonna be for you know it don't it wasn't planned but this big like relaunch was in just a couple years with jim lee the 1992 the big x-men number one one of the most successful x-men co- or marvel comics of all time isn't it and just straight up the best-selling single it issue might ever? still be i think it is which is crazy to think like we're almost we're 30 years on and it's still holding that top spot well also uh comics don't sell nearly as much as they did no, back true. Then. so <laughs> just straight up there will never be a comic that sells more than that it just yeah. won't happen it, it's it's a sad thing to say as much as while we see like you know, movies constantly breaking box office records and that'll keep happening. Uh, Nothing is ever going to beat, no comic will ever sell that much again. It just won't happen. Which is funny because like when you, when you look at, like you said, that 90s era of X-Men, despite certain things, you know, Age of Apocalypse, the X-Men in the 90s, you don't really think of when it comes to like their comics like their comic success it's all adaptations where in the claremont era you had stuff like dark phoenix saga days of future past x factor mutant massacre inferno like claremont had this guiding hand for 16 years on this and that i don't think we're ever going to see again either there's you know there's very few opportunities for comics creators to get a solid like even like five years off of a book now, much less 16. I know. I mean, even like the Grant Morrison era is like only about 40 issues, I think. Yeah. I think it might be like exactly like 40 or 41. I think it's like 114 to maybe like 154 or so. But that yeah, it's it seems like it always feels like it was much longer, but it wasn't actually that long. Like, you know, you compare the number of issues that, Jonathan Hickman himself has written. Yeah. Uh, even though the Hickman era feels like this, you know, this this big thing, it's like it's not, it, it's not even like a fraction of like what no. Claremont did. 
Like I, you look at the actual like numbers of the thing. I think like Jerry Duggan's Marauders, he got to write more Marauders than Hickman got to actually write just standalone X-Men issues. Yeah. And I just recently reread uh, or read for the first time Hellions, which is a blast to read. And they, I mean, they got 18 issues and it's it's funny to think about like you said like we're never going to get another comic sell like x-men number one and i don't think we're ever going to get a run on comics quite like claremont on the x-men again well because that was also uh i mean it's funny because this started happening during claremont's run but but just like you know we're so accustomed now to in ongoing comics there periodically the ongoing series will get somewhat derailed by crossover events. Right. And the crossover events didn't really start. Was it, was mutant massacre like the first big one that X-Men were involved in? I th- was, mm, was it, like, it might've the, been cause they, that, cause that involved like Thor and yeah. And like all the X books connecting. And then, yeah. you know, there was like Inferno and stuff like that. Like there were more of them. They started inc- becoming like more and more regular uh, because they were so successful. Right. But those are so often what kind of derail or like, you know, will often end like long ongoing runs. And, uh, and, you know, and so, but I was thinking about this recently because. I'm currently, I, I started for some reason this project of, uh, I just wanted to read um, all the like late 80s, early 90s post-crisis Batman comics. Nice. Uh, and I've, I've just, I think since DC finally started like collecting them in like like nice, uh, like organized editions, I was like, oh, I'm going I'm to get all these and finally read this whole era of Batman. And it's funny because after Crisis on Infinite Earths, there, there is, there's basically not a single Batman crossover or event for five years until Nightfall. There, the books are like every so often. There's like one issue that's like, oh, this is a tie-in to Millennium, uh, like like DC's event of like that year. But it's just like a one-off issue. The Bat books just do their own thing, set like separately from one another, just telling small scale stories for a full five years. And then you look at the nineties and it's like, okay, nightfall goes on for like years. And then, you know, then there's, you've got like legacy and contagion and, (laughs) uh, uh, then, you know, cataclysm, uh, no man's land. land. Then it's it's like a full decade of bat events. But, um, (laughs) but this was this point when like, we're now so used to it. Like, oh yeah, Marvel will have like two annual events and um, but back then it just wasn't the thing. They they could have these, especially if they were selling the, like the millions of issues that Claremont was. It's like no, right. dude, just just keep doing what you're doing uh, until until like sales drop off, or until uh, we decide that Jim Lee is more valuable than you <laughs> and want to you know let him write the stories. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's funny. You know, you you think about just how much time he might have had on that book following that if that hadn't happened. Like, obviously, at a certain point, any writer is going to run out of ideas. Right. It's just, it's the it's the curse of the muse. Like, at some point, it just leaves you. And it's, I'm fascinated by the what if of that, of like, whether or not. If he got not... to end it. Yeah. 
it's on his yeah, terms. Yeah, right. it's uh, again, I, I have not even read the whole Claremont run, but I just as I'm reading, I do occasionally think about like, oh, yeah, this isn't really going to have an ending. He's just going to, after one random issue, just not be writing it anymore. It's it's the same kind of thing. Like, have you read uh, John Byrne's Fantastic Four run? Yes. It. I love that run. And then eventually, like, DC just says, want to reboot Superman? And he just pieces out and, like, like kind of co-writes his last two. There's no ending <laughs> at all. He just disappears suddenly. And it's funny because, again, nowadays, even though the, the runs aren't as long, they, like, they usually writers and and artists like they end their runs especially if it's like uh you know if it's been successful and been like a, like a whole thing like yeah. they really try to to wrap things up and like it it's like ending like a tv show pretty much for sure like we're uh I'm, i i do a book club every friday where we're going through ultimate spider-man and we just crossed um my favorite comic run of all time it's it's incredible, and we just I'm reading it for the first time for oh, this wow. book club, and I'm I'm with my buddies uh, Malcolm and Jacob, who Malcolm is a huge fan, like that's his favorite run as well, and we just crossed uh, issue 111 as we're recording this. I'm recording this early, folks. Uh, we just crossed issue 111, which is Bagley's last issue, right? And that feels like a finale. Mm-hmm. I said on the on the book club, I was like, if the book ends here. It's perfect. Like, obviously, there's room for other stories to be told. And that issue, I think it's the issue right before that, Kitty Pride gets brought in to their high school. So it's like, oh, more love triangle shenanigans. But, like, that issue is just about Peter and Aunt May talking about him being Spider-Man. He, they just wrapped up that huge, like, almost 100 issues long battle against the Kingpin across New right. York wrapping up all of that and then it ends with him going like all right yeah i guess i'll i'll go find something to do and it the final page is beautiful pull, full page splash where he's just swinging off into the sky and it's got like the little spider-man bug at the corner which is usually like an end marker it's like yeah that's that's the perfect ending cue the michael mann music like this is we, we're done here and you and obviously like we're reading past that and ultimate spider-man continued and bendis continued to innovate but it's crazy how much we don't get true endings anymore like even you brought up hickman like his final issue of the x-men doesn't feel like a final issue right because he's still leading into inferno he's still getting ready for all of the other you know stuff that's going to be handed off and very rarely nowadays do we get like true endings for books. Yeah, I mean, I'm th- I'm thinking back to now, like, uh, well, obviously with superhero comics, th- we know the characters will all like continue on, like it will never really end. And sometimes you get a thing kind of like, uh, the really kind of uh, like the seamless transition between the end of like the. Uh, the Bendis, Malieve, Daredevil into the Brubaker, Michael Lark era, where it's right. like they almost like they end the run on a clip, but it's like they clearly collaborated to like just hand it off, but like the story keeps on going. But yeah. then you'll have something like, uh, like the the end of like the Scott Snyder, Greg Capullo Batman is like mm-hmm. 
an, an, an ending. Like they wrapped it all up and, uh, and uh, as in like, this is our statement on it. And then, you know, next person do whatever you want to do from here. And so it, it does, it it really does kind of depend, you know, and and I, there are plenty of endings where it's just like, oh, and then a crossover event came along and, and we're going to bounce now, now that the status quo has been blown up or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. And, and you, I mean, you brought up Daredevil, like one of my favorite endings to a run is the, uh, the Wade Samney Daredevil, where that just ends with him being just the most, it's one of my favorite comics runs of all time it's so good and the way that it ends is like okay he's in a good place he's got a great relationship his you know he's with foggy he's in the west coast it's a great time and then you get the next issue and he gets hit by a car by charles sewell and like you you don't often see those times where you can kind of like close a book and leave that Mm -hmm. and speed you know going to x-men uncanny x-force one of my favorite x-men books uh, by Remender has a wonderful ending. That's and still yet, a run that I have not read, and oh, I, 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 I've I, been, I, oh, I, I fully intend to get to it. Yeah, it's once you're through the Claremont stuff, like I, I always recommend that to people. It's not, you know, any time, even when I picked it up, like I didn't think I was going to love it as much as I did. But by the end of it, it's one of my favorite X Men stories. I've heard we, nothing but great stuff about it. Yeah. It's uh, but I, I mean, thinking back to now, just X Men runs. I will say, like, the the Morrison run really does feel like a complete thing, especially when yeah. you get into because immediately after that, <laughs> because like they, they left Marvel on not great terms, so yeah. immediately they start just like undoing everything, <laughs> and also like I feel I, thinking about this now, um, because if you look at the the final story arc of the Mars and X-Men, it's like, it's not dissimilar from uh, the way the, the Snyder Capullo uh, Batman ends. I mean, that ended with like, yeah, I, I, I guess the, uh, the last night on earth, like mini series, but basically they end their runs on like hypothetical future stories mm-hmm. where it's kind of like, this may be Canon. It may not be, but this is just uh, a future of that's like an epilogue to <laughs> to our run, and it, I, I think and that's like a nice device in comics because it's a way of being like, on the one hand, we can do whatever we want because uh, this is just a hypothetical future, uh, yeah. and so so it, it, it like maybe it maybe maybe this will happen in the future, maybe it won't, and uh, but also we can really put our stamp on it because this is not about like the current day uh, like canonical characters that immediately have to like you know get followed up on. Well, but at the same time, I think there's there's absolutely when it's done well, it's done great. I think the ending of Morrison's X Men White Hot Room, like all of that stuff is fantastic and marvel to their credit did say okay you want to kill gene gray she's dead for you know 12 13 years we're just Mm -hmm. gonna leave that there but i could also see like there are certain books like i don't know how familiar you are with the jason aaron thor run oh uh very i love it i've read the whole thing it's incredible and it ends with that king thor mini which i just did not vibe with Mm mm-hmm 
if they had ended it like at war of the realms which to your point earlier like oh it's this big crossover event that ends the run it's one of those events it's one of those times those few times where i'm like you could have just ended it at the event we didn't need the hypothetical king of the war which is also it's kind of like what hickman did with secret wars yes because that 100%. was a big crossover event but it also really serves as like the climax and like just the culmination of i mean his whole long avengers thing also yeah. paying off like his i mean you know hickman is like a real galaxy brain guy in terms sure of is. like playing 4d chess and like <laughs> uh, like pl- i mean while well, everyone's playing uno like. exactly but like the fact that uh secret wars even pays off his short run on the ultimates from years earlier yeah that that's wild but uh but yeah but that is also just using like the big crossover to like wrap it all up and then get out of there yeah and it's and it makes me kind of sad that he never really got to or at least he got rushed to his ending on the x-men with the way that the Krakoa era was kind of like, no, we kind of want to stay here and we're going to, you know, Hickman had a plan. He's like, okay, guys, I'm out of here. I got to like, I got to move on to other things. The thing that I wonder about with that is because it seemed like he really got a lot of freedom to do what he wanted and to kind of like sure. do this. And uh, the impression that I got, and maybe, you know, y- you know more about this than I do, um, wasn't so much that he like, you know, left against his will or whatever, but that his kind of goal was to lay the groundwork for like other people to just take it and let it go for a long time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he was like, okay, I've kind of like I've 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 moved the pieces into where I want them to go. We've assembled a good team. You guys take it from here. And that said, I I fully expect that at some point in like i don't know two or three years he's gonna pop back in for like another inferno type thing to like steer it into a new era i'd love to see that from what i understand um he had like a two to three year plan or a two to three act plan and while he was like okay guys we're gonna start moving to you know act two and act three a lot of the creative teams were like no we kind of want to stay in act one we like this world we want to spend more time here and so that more or less put a ticking clock on him because there are certain books that were proposed like there was an entire you know al ewing moira x book that just never happened because i didn't of even know reasons. about that yeah i i know very little about it all i know is that there was he had had a pitch ready it wasn't like in production but like he had a pitch ready they were ready to go and it just kind of didn't happen and a lot of that from what i understand got put into the recent um uh x lives x deaths of wolverine stuff right right with moira but yeah it's i think it's safe to say that there's there's a lot of free range in the x-men when it comes to what how they're treated because they're you know they're a cash cow for marvel they are a proven commodity the 90s proved that and when it came to pride of the x-men um we got it back we got it back uh, it back on topic we're circling in uh when it came to pride of the x-men they basically said we are going to try and tell a story that we haven't told yet when it comes to our animation properties. Cause when you look at like Marvel animation, even from the eighties and before it's like, 
they're obviously they're they're for kids they are this um they're simple one and done stories and pride of the x-men they're like no we want to like go in on prejudice and hate and all of this stuff and we want to you know get some top tier talent involved in this so they took claremont's kind of pride and joy uh no pun intended kitty pride and they're like we're gonna make her the center of this story and they went and got toei animation of all places the production companies behind dragon ball z sailor moon and in the early to mid 80s the the dungeons and dragons cartoon the transformers cartoon and gi joe to work on this and it, they were... it does look a lot better than I mean it's only totally. the pilot episode, but the animation it's just compa- it's better than a lot of especially the other Marvel shows of the era. Yeah, it's like the I mean honestly like while you know it's still eighties you know TV animation it's like it's not not going to have the fluidity of like a, a feature film or or whatever, but right. I. I think the actual like uh, style and like character designs, I I personally prefer the look of it to the the, the regular '90s X Men cartoon. Totally agree. It's and yeah, it's uh it's surprisingly dynamic. Like the some of the animation for like the powers is really nice. The yeah. uh, the movement of the like I think specifically of when they're introduced in like the, the danger room sequence yes. and like Colossus Love running it. through this tunnel, like dodging these like beams, like moving out. I'm, I'm yeah, like, pillars, yeah. yeah, this is actually like some pretty dynamic animation. And, uh, and this like looks much better than a lot of it. It's like contemporary shows. Totally agree. Like I, I remember the, you know, rewatching it for this. The thing that's always like kind of stuck out to me is you see it right from the beginning. They've got, you know, Magneto in this containment field. And when the, you know, the field bursts, just the fluidity of him walking his cape swishing behind him. I'm like, this is like, you could stack this up to like an early 2000s. Like this would not be... Uh, out of place if you had this running alongside like x-men evolution right the the style of it is really nice and the character designs which are very of course claremont era they rule they do like one one little touch that i've always loved is just the way that magneto's face under his helmet is almost all in shadow except for his eyes really good touch i i should also just of course mention here that i i feel like for a lot of us one of my main associations with this show this episode i guess uh is the fact that it 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 became the basis for the konami x-men arcade game yes and uh and so which uh, you know a, a game that Basically, I was always excited if, if like, you know, when, like, my family would go skiing and the lodge would have the X-Men arcade game. Or, like, if we went on vacation and the hotel had a game room with the X-Men arcade game. I I don't think I ever beat it. Uh, but it was a great game. And the character designs were awesome. And, it, like, the, like, the little, like, cutscenes in it looked really cool. And it was yeah. all pulled right from this. And, uh, and so, yeah, so that is probably, that might be where I have seen some of this imagery more Mm -hmm. than in the actual episode itself. For sure. And a lot of the 
you know, visual touches. Like there's something I think that's really fun and striking about Cyclops. His visor isn't like full red. It's mm-hmm. mostly black with just like two red dots to like symbolize his eyes. And then it like fills up with red when he blasts. Like it's absolutely down to Toei Animation's animation style and a lot of that almost anime influence, which mm-hmm. I love. Bringing like some of the best uh superhero you know comic book whatever adaptations always have just a little bit of anime inspiration in them and this this is no different and they decided to kind of mesh that with claremont's writings from issues uh 129 through 139 of his uncanny run that's introducing kitty pride and dazzler introducing emma frost having kitty you know in the danger room for the first time and even though like a lot i think a large part of that is the dark phoenix saga um it's also you know in claremont's run that stepping stone for cyclops to exit the book and for kitty to enter in right it is also interesting that this is an x-men show without gene gray yes Totally agree. And and I think the because the stories that they're pulling from were almost a decade before this show came out. Yeah. So at this point, I'm sure I can't remember off the top of my head where they were at in that run. But like Jean Grey is probably back by now. And the she, fact that she's just yeah. not in the show. Is, she comes back. Like it does not take that long until you get the like. What is it? The Fantastic Four? Uh, it's like the Fantastic Four Avengers crossover where, where she pops out of the bay. Yeah, well, and it's like, oh, her actual body was in a cocoon <laughs> at the bottom. Of... A thing that I, I believe uh, Kurt Busiek came up with the idea for when he was like, I think like just like a, a an, in his early twenties working at Marvel, and uh, but yeah, but yeah, she was definitely back uh, at that point, but. And, and it, it it makes me wonder, you know, what they would do with the characters if this had gone on. Because right. you know, obviously, you know, again, I, I have not really watched much of the 90s cartoons since I was a kid, but I watched a lot of it as a kid. And, you know, obviously, uh, you know, the uh, like Scott and Jean, a core part of it, you know, Wolverine, you know. They adapt like, like the Dark Phoenix Saga in there too. Yeah, they do, and uh, and especially just like the character dynamics. You know, you've still got a bit of the love triangle with like Scott, Jean, and Logan and stuff like that. And uh, it makes me wonder, like, okay, so without Jean, like, what's the Scott Wolverine like relationship going to be like? Like, uh, I mean, obviously like, they bring in Madeline Pryor. Is what they do. Do, do they in this show? <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, like how how do you bring Madeline Pryor with no gene? I mean, and it's just if, if so. it were up to me, this would have taken place just after in the team's chronological story, like the Dark Phoenix. Like everyone's dealing with the aftermath of that, right? So oh, it could have been episode two. They're like, oh, hey, by the way, Kitty, you're new. Let let us fill you in on some really <laughs> heavy stuff. That just let us fill you in on this happened. entire cosmic saga we just went through. Well. Lest we forget, in this pilot episode, they go to space. They do. They have. They deal with the what? It, I can't remember the name of the asteroid. But the asteroid M. They basically want this comet to strike the Earth and 
like they're already dealing with space stuff. They've got the suits. Where did they get the suits? I know it's all. Uh, I love the Blackbird. You know, which is like flying to to like you know different. Uh, you know, just different talents or whatever. And then the yeah. next scene, oh, it just also goes into space. But well, and, I, and something I never caught until watching it for this. If you if you watch when they're like, all right, we're in our spacesuits, we're kind of floating over to asteroid M, the entire visor of Scott's uh of Scott's space helmet is red. It's tinted red. And he shoots fully through that to open a hole into the asteroid. And cool. it's wild. Like, how did they come up with something like this? Yeah, it's... I mean, the funny thing about it is... Uh, okay, so one thing I do remember from the, ni- the 90s show um, is that the f- the first episode was a two-parter, uh, Night right. of the Sentinel. Um, and of course... And, and I love you. Have, you have the perfect like point of comparison here, which is... because. The X-Men have always, uh, I, I should say, a useful thing that they've often done for different eras is to have the kind of like uh, like audience surrogate character like following POV, a new yeah. recruit. Uh, and you, you have that in, in different eras. Um, and so, you know, and obviously in the 80s, it was Kitty Pride, And then right. in the 90s, it became Jubilee. But, uh, but like you look at like, in the 90s show, immediately, they start with, like, a two-part episode. They're going a bit more serialized. They're, like, you know... The, the pacing is not quite as frantic as Pride of the X-Men. <laughs> yes. Like, um, immediately, this episode, they go from, oh, you know, Kitty shows up for her first day at school, and, and, and like, 20 minutes later, she's in outer space, like, with Nightcrawler <laughs> diverting a comet from destroying the Earth. And uh, I will say also, like... You know, Magneto's plan is really to destroy the entire Earth. And so the only surviving sentient beings will be him and the Brotherhood on an asteroid. And like it's it's peak 80s cartoon. It really is. I'm I'm, I'm just going to say, Eric, I don't think you thought through this plan very well uh you're also going to kill a bunch of mutants if you destroy the earth too so well i mean look what he's working with here in in this in this pilot they are called the brotherhood of mutant terrorists <laughs> straight Incredible. up but you cannot you cannot get away with in kids animation no. today there's no way but his team comprises of magneto pyro blob toad juggernaut and emma frost the white queen who is never, I believe, given a name other than the White Queen. That's it. And she, all of a sudden, isn't really, like, a telepath. She creates, like, these psychic javelins that she just launches at people. It's wild. So she's like Psylocke. Basically, yeah. I don't know why they just didn't get Psylocke. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, I guess, that you know, they were like, we should have a woman on the team as well. And uh, it is, I mean... It, it is pretty funny how, you know, uh, we're all very familiar with the the image in the title sequence of the 90s cartoon of the two teams, like, running at each other. Running at each other, yeah. And the makeup of Magneto's team is pretty <laughs> close to what it is uh, yeah. in, in the 90s title sequence. He just, I, th- I think he just swaps out Toad for, like, Avalanche. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Man, I forgot about Avalanche. But uh, then, but yeah, you know, it's like obviously 
it's a 22 minute episode. There's, <laughs> you can't expect, you know, too many, like all the characters to get like their own subplots and everything, but everyone gets screen time. I mean, shockingly, even Lockheed. Lockheed uh, shows up. I completely forgot that the little <laughs> dragon is there too. And, and look, I'll just say like, while this is, you know, uh, very much an 80s kids like action cartoon it is uh it does not have like the depth or storytelling maturity of like a batman the animated series no uh, or anything <laughs> like that it is uh like you know it was like fine for its era and the animation is like better than average for its time um there are like I was a little bit impressed by some of the little storytelling touches, just like, yeah, you know, the arc of like Kitty and Nightcrawler's relationship where like totally. she's scared by him initially. And then the two of them are the ones that basically work together to save the day. And she like apologizes to him at the end. Like they have these little, like, like multiple little arcs and payoffs. Like, you know, you've got like Magneto just like kicking Lockheed to this, I guess dragons <laughs> live on asteroids. I guess he's just hanging out. Yeah. Right. And then, you know, you know, a handful of scenes later, Lockheed like bites his ankle, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. dur during this fight and helps them out and ends up joining with the X-Men. So like, you know, it's like for this kind of storytelling uh, and considering the sheer amount of plot that they cram <laughs> in there, they like basically destroy the X-Mansion in the first episode. Uh, it's like, you know, like it's functional it's like it's a functional script yeah the the story goes to wild places like they start the they start the episode basically going to war with the united states government yep. because the the u.s military is like uh is carting magneto around and listener how do you how do i know it's the u.s military you ask because everyone talks like this major major wilson like it's wild like they start off they go there emma frost breaks uh breaks magneto out and we're off to the races and like patrick said like they blow up the x mansion they bring juggernaut in uh they what i love a touch i really do love that i wish that we had gotten more of in marvel animation the stanley intro where it's just like yeah. panning through the world and it's like Look out, true believers. Look to your right. Look to your left. One of you's a mutant. And like this ridiculously cool intro it's for a story. Of, yeah, it's the kind of thing. I don't know why every one of these shows didn't have the Stan Lee intro. I mean, I, I'm thinking to uh, th they had him narrating the uh, the PS1 Spider-Man. Spider-Man, yeah. Yeah. And it just like it. It, it makes so much sense, especially if you're doing like an episodic cartoon or whatever. And and, Stan, and the tone of Stanley narration really fits into this kind of like, you know, for sure. It might seem out of place in like, you know, a two and a half hour like MCU movie. But if yes. you're doing like, ep, you know, these like fast paced, very broad episodic cartoons, absolutely get Stanley in there, like giving you like, the background and introducing you to this world. And the, the tone really does sell the world itself. And it gets you ready to like meet these characters. When Kitty goes in, she meets Charles Xavier 
and they are like, all right, here are the X-Men. And we get intros to Cyclops, Storm, Colossus, Dazzler, Nightcrawler, and our good friend, Australian Wolverine. It's really, it's an effective way to bring all of these characters together to let you know immediately what they're about in that way of like, okay, this is Cyclops. He shoots concussive force from his eyes. This is Dazzler. She sings really well and sells a lot of tickets. And it's only they they got into dazzler's music career i wish because she was she was ready to dive into the theatrical premiere of breakin in this specific pilot oh like, oh yeah absolutely she's got the headband she's got the leather jacket this was uh this was dazzler's more like 80s costume because there was the original sure. like this was when she kind of went from like disco queen to to more like I mean, almost like aerobics instructor. Yes. Well, and, and you kind of like, I, I just thought of it now, you know, comparing the two X-Men animated projects, her costume is pretty much what evolved into Rogue's costume. It just is. The, the suit. She's got the leather jacket and the headband. Like, there's a big through line for those characters. You gotta have one woman in a leather jacket over a jumpsuit. It just makes sense. And when it comes to, I think one of the biggest questions a lot of people have is Australian Wolverine, obviously, because he is one of the most dynamic characters on this show. Immediately they set up Kitty to be like, she wants to gain his approval. She's, she can be an X-Men. My favorite line, she's like, I'm not a kid. I'm 14 years old. And I'm like, oh Lord. She is a very... She's a tall 14-year-old. She's a very tall 14-year-old. Like, she is up to Colossus's shoulder, and he is a large man. Yes. And may- just maybe because I'm turning 30 this year, like, I hear her say, I'm not a kid, I'm 14. I'm like, that is, that hurts me inside. It does. And she, yet, she's a she child. does a lot for a 14-year-old in 22 minutes. Face de- facing down Juggernaut, going to space, and... Australian Wolverine, I, I looked into this, and uh, Rick Holberg, who was the casting director for this, uh, he says, uh, I was forced to use the Australian version of Wolverine, which coincidentally foreshadowing or foreshadowed the casting of Australian actor Hugh Jackman, because all of this Australian stuff was popular at the time. The Mad Max films, Crocodile Dundee, and so on. It was going to turn out in the comics, and I don't know if this is true or not, but he says that Wolverine was an expatriated Australian. The direction of the character, however, never got beyond the plotting stages, and Wolverine remained Canadian in the comics. And from what I understand, the reason that he became Australian in this was because an early version of the draft featured Wolverine calling Pyro a dingo. And they... He never does that. He calls nope. Toad a dingo. And so they were just like, it's got to be Australian. Only Australian people use the word dingo. It is very strange. Uh, I mean, that said, like, I could see a reality, like, in the comics. If, uh, sure. if like, Wolverine has the vibe where it's like, I could see that guy coming from the outback. Absolutely, sure. 100%. I, I, I mean... Basically, you know, you look at Wolverine, uh, and it seems like the two pla- he could have come from one of two places, either like the the wilderness of Canada, like out in, <laughs> out in the woods, or the Australian outback. One of those two things. He's not American, 
Like, and Absolutely so, not. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's just funny. It's, uh, I, and I, I will say, I, 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 speaking of Wolverine, I did also remember that uh, this, uh, yeah, this, again, I keep wanting to be like, this is not a show, it's an episode. <laughs> Pride of the X-Men is, was, I'm pretty sure, my introduction to Wolverine's brown costume. Yes. And, uh, and it was basically, it, like, from, yeah, at that point when I was a kid, it just, um, this is where I just decided, this is cooler than the all yellow costume with 100%. like the black like spikes and or yeah the, ti- or, or the tiger stripes and yeah whatnot. exactly this is uh the brown costume is the best one and so like i, I would all th- that was like my main reference point for what pride of the x-men was it was like oh right the that that one cartoon will where wolverine has the cooler brown costume and uh <laughs> yeah it's just like it's a it's a great look it's uh, I mean, in general, I think I prefer these costumes to the '90s ones, and uh, no disrespect yeah. to Jim Lee, but like, I I prefer the classic Cyclops to to him with uh totally all the patches. Agree. Um, I I prefer this look for Storm. Mm-hmm. Uh, Colossus is the same. I think he's the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Colossus, ha- ha- I mean it. He's still the same. Yeah, I, I I just read Immortal X-Men number one yesterday. Yeah. It's, it's, it's still the same. Uh, Colossus has had three costumes in the entire time he's been in the comics. Look, you know, do you, don't fix what ain't broken. It's true. It's true. And this show, even though, you know, we get that incredible third act where, like you said, Nightcrawler has to be plugged into this thing to divert the the comet into the asteroid, but he's there and he if he lets go, it'll turn back towards the earth. Everyone gets back to the Blackbird. They're like, oh, you gotta you gotta hold on. And all of a sudden I'm looking at like Pox Pox. I'm like, oh, we're gonna we're gonna morph nightcrawler in the first episode we're just gonna kill him and we're just you know he's he's gonna have that moment with wolverine in like house of x like three where he's just like i'm just gonna go burn up in the sun and we're just this is how nightcrawler dies i i was i had completely forgotten just how dire that situation was like the the comet blows up asteroid m they take each other out and the nightcrawler is all of a sudden just hurtling towards the earth in the atmosphere i'm like i know he's burning up he's just like yep i'm just falling towards the earth and they try to like do these little like grappling hooks to get him and they completely miss there is this brief 30 seconds they let the audience sit with 30 seconds of, yeah, he just burned up. He's done. He's gone. Before they have him pop up, he bamps out of the locker. And they're like, oh, my God, there's that resolution with Kitty. Which, again, like you said, is kind of the core of that show. Or of that, God, you, you got me doing it. Of that, what is of that it? pilot. It's, you know, the idea of tolerance. Of, like, don't judge a book by its cover. And, like, all of this you know, going past preconceived notions and biases, that's baked into the X-Men. And if anything, this is a distilled version of what the X-Men are all about. They fight bad guys, they save the world, and they fight against prejudice. And that's really what the X-Men are presented as in this as well. Yeah, I I mean, I will say uh, the one thing that there wasn't 
quite as much room for that does feel kind of essential to the X-Men is the prejudice didn't like was a very pretty minor part of this because right. the, the only prejudice from humans we really see is uh the the military people saying bad things about mutants but they're yeah. also saying this about like magneto the evil mutant yeah. yeah there there wasn't a thing of like you know like again there just was no time because there's so much plot in this episode but you can imagine if this was a two-parter uh yeah. that maybe they would have done something like uh the 90s show did and introduced kitty pride like at the mall and then like her powers coming out and then the public freaking out and uh you know and being terrified of her and um and then she has to like find her people like in general it's mostly this is basically just about a superhero team stopping bad guys from destroying the earth yeah and i mean they do have that like little moment where I think when they fight uh, Blob and Pyro and they get out of there, Nightcrawler saves this kid's like teddy bear or something and like gives it to the girl and the dad's like, you get away from her, you mutant freak. And I'm like, okay, everybody, I guess, just hates Nightcrawler. Everybody's fine with the other human looking X-Men. Nightcrawler is the, the weirdest looking guy. He's terrifying. Like... We get we have the benefit of seeing him just in ink and pen, mm-hmm. and if we saw him in real life, just out of the blue, it would be terrifying. Yeah, but the show itself, I think, does a great job of kind of getting you into the zone of that world of their their status quo. And unfortunately, the show itself just was a victim of mixed reviews and poor timing. Because in, in 1989, Marvel was going through some financial issues. Uh, Marvel Entertainment was sold by, from New Era to some other company in 1989, just after they turned in the pilot for this. That's where Ron Perlman comes in, right? Yes. Who eventually, who, who owned Marvel like through them going bankrupt and then sold them like in 97. Yeah, and... At that point, the new company headed by him was basically like, oh, we're halting production on everything except Muppet Babies. That's our cash cow. And from there, the show, you know, unfortunately died with the pilot. You know, Patrick already mentioned that incredible Konami arcade game. Oh, yeah. That was released in 1992. And... Thankfully, two of the uh, script editors, uh, Will Munoz and Larry Houston, went on to create the pitch for Night of the Sentinels and kicked off the X-Men animated series. So this was kind of a proving ground for them and allowed them to kind of get a feel for the characters and for the world and allowed them to create this huge thing that this year was announced as getting a revival. We're getting X Men ninety seven. Yeah, and I I will say uh, one thing I find interesting is so you know again it, it's also it's on Wikipedia and everything that Pride of the X Men getting mixed reviews, mm-hmm. but when was this like? It's not like this was done as a pilot where like they aired it. And then we're like, well, fans, it's up to you if you want to see more of it. And fans were like, we're mixed on this. And they were like, well, okay, we won't make more. Like, it was an internal decision after this was, this was just already just like, you know, a one and done pilot. But I, and I feel like when I hear about like, 
I genuinely believe that if this had been aired on TV in 1989, considering, you know, the the general quality of, like, other superhero cartoons on TV that decade, like, fans, especially kids, would have probably gone crazy for it. Just because 100%. they were so starved for anything. And this is actually, like, a, like a, a good-looking, relatively faithful adaptation that, like, again... You know, if I were, uh, I, I mean, I would have been, I don't know, like, like one and a half years old when this aired in 89. <laughs> so I would not have watched it. But if I was the age I was in like 92, uh, mm-hmm. when this premiered, I would have been all about, I mean, I, I did love it when I watched it as a kid. Like the fans having mixed reviews, I think come from years later with people just like discussing right. it on the internet once, you know, once they'd already seen like the '90s show and that had been on for years, that was their basis. Yeah, yeah. It's it's just it's funny to look back because as this, what, I feel like when you hear, oh right, the uh, the X Men pilot that never went to series, you was the assumption is that it's it's going to be something like what is it like the 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 generation like the humans? Oh, not not even humans because that got made uh, into a show, but like the uh, the justice league live action justice league pilot from the 90s mm. um the like generation x just like these other superhero pilots that never went to series because they were bad and and no one liked them and then when they le- leaked out years later people were just like oh yeah this sucks like what what a weird oddity but it turns out this show actually probably would have been a hit and it was entirely because of like the studio like you know, losing money and just like weird internal decisions that didn't end up happening because there is like, if they had just gone ahead and been like, yeah, actually let's produce one season of this. I, I think, you know, maybe in some uh, like parallel reality, like where, where this happened, it would have been very successful and run for like four seasons or whatever. And they just wouldn't have made the nineties one because this was actually like a pretty solid starting point. Yeah, I I think there is still, I mean, today, even though we are getting that uh, X-Men animated series revival, I still think there's room for an actual animated adaptation of the Claremont era. I think because we've gotten X-Men Evolution, which I hold near and dear to my heart. It's my favorite X-Men series of all time. Uh, We got the mixture of like astonishing slash utopia era X-Men with the Wolverine in the X-Men series, which is also excellent. Have not watched Uh, it. It, it's really good. It only got one season and the cliffhanger of the season, it's like season two, Age of Apocalypse. And then they just never made it. Oh, God. And it's it's funny, like looking back at it, because even watching it, you know, for this, I have a blast watching it every time. Yeah. Whether it's like the the insane animation, like you said, for its time, whether it's, you know, Cyclops running in being like the only person who's going to get burned is you pyro. Like I, I love how, how they were just like, we're just going to dive into this. It's going to be camp. We're going to take our time and we're going to make a great show. And like you said, they, they got cut off at the knees, which is unfortunate. However, I'm glad that we get to revisit this listeners. You can watch this on YouTube. It's on YouTube in full. You even get the really fun and ridiculous Spider-Man go out and vote ad. Oh my god, it's incredible. Right it's iconic. Like well, it, it's the- also 
it's the it's the Spider-Man register to vote thing. Yes. Which to me raises a lot of questions because <laughs> children this is for children and children <laughs> are not of legal voting age. And so this is the tone of this thing, it is a, a live action sequence of like, a, for like 30 seconds, of a man in a Spider Man costume jumping in from different <laughs> angles, being like, Yeah, you can register at your local post office. It's important to make your voice heard. And I'm like, This is only for people ages 18 and older who are not the target audience for this show at all. So, what are you doing here? I'm I'm convinced that they thought that this was going to be such a hit when it came to the VHS release that kids were going to be like, Mommy, Daddy, have you registered to vote? Your voice needs to be heard so that the X-Men don't get persecuted. Like, Spider-Man said so. Yeah. <laughs> and the fact that we haven't gotten Tom Holland or now Andrew Garfield or Tobey Maguire running around telling people to vote in a Spider-Man costume... It's oh money god. left on the table. Oh my god! Yes, yeah. stop! Stop making these guys do like you know weird videos to play like at Disney theme park attractions and get them to do like voter registration promos. That that's where your money should be going. Not all superheroes wear capes, but they should all be registered to vote. Yeah, exactly. And so. As we're wrapping up here, do you have any final thoughts on uh, Pride of the X-Men, on, I guess, X-Men as a whole? We talked, we covered a lot of stuff, which I was not expecting, but I'm really, I'm really happy we did. We did, yeah. Uh, this is, I mean, really, this, this makes me want to just play the old arcade game again. And, sure. uh, and just, like... No joke, the the line of dialogue that is burned into my brain forever, and uh, and it's it it's because it comes from Pride of the X Men, but it's it plays repeatedly in <laughs> in the game is just nothing can move the blob <laughs> because when you're fighting the blob, he's a boss at the end of a level. He just keeps saying it like you're yeah. like bouncing off him, and uh, and yeah, it felt good to finally hear that again and be like, ah, oh, yes, this is the origin of one of the great lines of like modern <laughs> fiction. Of a, of a game just chock full of incredible lines. Oh, yeah. It's, uh... Yeah, I'm blanking on all other lines from that. <laughs> uh, I think I remember Pyro laughing. But mostly, I, I just think of, like, okay, I can picture, like, Wolverine slashing. I can picture Nightcrawler's special move. His, like, teleporter thing where he takes out a bunch of robots. Yeah, um, it pops up in, like, five places. Exactly, exactly. Uh, yeah, I just, uh, I would like to play the game again. Um... Please, uh, listeners, um, uh, tweet at me uh, at Patrick H. Willems and let me know if you live in New York City, if there is some arcade here where uh, I can go play that game. And do the same for me, obviously, at Pod at GeekSplainPod, if you're in Los Angeles, because I know we've got lots of arcade bars, but you got to point me to the right one, because I will spend a paycheck trying to beat this thing. I'll do it. And I'll do it for you, the listener. Money well spent. Absolutely. So thank you. You should do an episode. Just do a live episode. That's just, you just put a microphone next to you as you narrate (laughs) you trying to beat the X-Men arcade game. I will, I will get you back on this podcast, whether I, I go to New York 
or whatever, and we're going to sit down at an arcade and we're going to beat this thing. Exactly. We're going to make this happen. A six hour long episode. A six hour live stream. That'll, that'll be our, our, uh, our fifth year anniversary stream. Just us at an arcade. We'll make it happen. Fantastic. I can't wait. <laughs> so uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, for our listeners who want to follow up with you, check out your stuff because Patrick is doing incredible things and has been for a very long time. I've been a fan of his for years now. Thank uh, you. Where can they follow you? Uh, well, my main thing is uh, I make videos on the internet uh, where I talk about movies at length. Uh, and you can watch those at youtube.com slash Patrick H. Willems. Uh, I've got a feature film coming out in the near future that will be premiering on the streaming platform Nebula. Uh, more information to be announced in the near future. Um, and uh, yeah, uh, social media links. You know, uh, I'm, a, I'm Patrick H. Willems on Twitter and Instagram. That's it. Easy stuff. I'm Patrick H. Willems everywhere. Everywhere. He's, he's got his branding on lock. He knows what he's about. Oh, yeah. Listeners, thank you so much for joining us for uh, part three of X-May. Tune in next week. We've got some pretty spicy stuff. We're going from the pride of the X-Men to the age of apocalypse. Tune in next week. Welcome back to this week's Comics Countdown. This is the segment of our show where I talk about the comics that I think you should be picking up this week, whether it's at your local comic book shop or comicsology or however you get your comics. These are the ones I think you should definitely take a look at. But before we get into this week's books, let's take a look back at last week's books with the Geek Explained Pick of the Week of last week. And for me, I think to the surprise of no one, it was Captain America Symbol of Truth, written by Tojo Nyebuchi with art by R.B. Silva, it had everything you would want in a Captain America story, especially a Sam Wilson Captain America story. You want bombastic action? Oh, we gotcha. You want scenes that showcase the man behind the shield? Oh, we gotcha. We want some political intrigue and clues into the wider mystery circling around the villains of the series oh you betcha we got you there what a great start to the series i cannot wait to see where this book goes but that's last week's books let's take a look at this week this week we've got six books to talk about and i think appropriately most of them are x-men books <laughs> i'm very excited to check this out uh let's go ahead and dive into the list here first off we have new mutants number 25 this is written by vidya ayala with art by rod race and jan dursema uh this is the jumping on point for new mutants going forward uh this is supposed to be kind of the next stage the destiny of x juncture i guess the destiny of x saga for new mutants and it's a solid book i think that people really do need to get in on this especially if you enjoyed all of the hellish demon stuff out of dr strange the multiverse of madness this is one for you to check out for sure let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here the labors of magic book one best 
laid plans. The labors of magic start here. The Big 2-5 is here, and it's the perfect jumping-on point for fans new and old. Ilyana Rasputin is the Sorcerer Supreme and the rightful queen of Limbo. But she's been awfully busy on Krakoa. Someone's got their eye on the throne, and magic isn't the only queen in mutantdom. Vita Ayala and Rod Race rekindle an old flame for a whole new generation of magic lovers. I am a big fan of Ilyana Rasputin. I think she's a wonderful character, and I'm very excited to get more of her as time goes on. But this does seem to be the start of the war, the upcoming war, between Ilyana and Madeline Pryor. So get ready for that. This is the time to begin this book. Next up... Speaking of amazing books, we have Iron Fist number three. This is written by Alyssa Wong with art by Michael YG. I love this book. (laughs) I love this book so much. It's so good. Um, I've been really enjoying the last two issues. I feel like it takes too long between issues, though. I want more issues of this. I think that everything that's going on with these characters is really dynamic, and it's a great new chapter in the Iron Fist saga. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis here. Danny Rand's search continues, but he's about to realize that he isn't the only one hunting for the mysterious new Iron Fist. As demons stalk Kunlun and ugly histories are dragged into the fight, the new Iron Fist will have to make a choice between his duty and his conscience. Yeah, I'm in. I love this book. It's so good. Next up, we have Immortal X-Men number two. This is written by Kieran Gillen with art by Lucas Wernick. Real quick little plug. Um, the Comics Collective podcast, who were the guests last week, recently did an interview with Kieran Gillen. So check that out. I It should be up as you are listening to this. Give it a listen. It's great. Um, Karen Gillen rules, and so do the Comics Collective. So anyway, for this book, I'm very excited. The first issue, I I will say, I went to this first issue wanting to not like it because there are so many books on the pull list, and it's hard for me and my wallet to discern which books need to be kept on the list. But the end of this book, I mean... What more can you say? I am fully on board with this. Cannot wait to pick this up. Let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Part 2. All Mankind's Woes. Emergency Council Meeting. Magneto leaving the council means big shoes need to be filled. Celine demonstrating her foot size by crushing the whole island beneath it is unorthodox, yet compelling. Can the Quiet Council resist? Yeah, I really dig Celine being brought in as the pseudo-antagonist for this first run. It's really fun. The art is gorgeous. The writing is great. Can't wait to pick this up. Next up, we have Nightwing number 92, written by Tom Taylor with art by Bruno Redondo. Continuing on the wonderful run so far. I love this book. It's so freaking good. I'm going to be saying that a lot about books this week. So uh, let's just go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Bloodhaven Mayor Melinda Zuko is in trouble, pretending to work for Blockbuster while secretly trying to take him and his gang of criminals down, while also working alongside Dick Grayson to uplift the city. But as his half-sister, sharing the last name of the man who killed his parents, it's a lot to juggle. And enough for one to accidentally let slip a secret or two in the wrong company if she's not careful. Meanwhile, Nightwing and Oracle cuddle up and decide to finally define their relationship. 
<sighs> crime, intrigue, romance. What more could you want in a Nightwing book? I'm very excited to pick this up. Next up, we have the surprise, and yet the not at all surprise for me when picking up its first issue. It's X-Men Red. X-Men Red number two, written by Al Ewing with art by Stefano Caselli, blew the doors off for me. I absolutely loved this first issue. And the second issue featuring a cover by my boy Gabriel Summers, is uh, very exciting. So let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. Man on Fire. Who can tame the Red Planet? The mutants of Mars spent millennia worshipping war, and on what they now call Arako, they're keeping up their violent ways. Abigail Brand knows the Red Planet needs a firm ruler in charge, but Storm has other ideas, along with a broken Magneto in her corner and Sunspot making his own moves. It's a new world, and someone has to claim it. It's Al Ewing in space! What more could you want? This is going to be a great, great issue. But the big book of the week for me, the book I think you should absolutely be picking up, is, of course, Batman Superman World's Finest number three. Written by Mark Wade, art by Dan Mora. This has everything you want. This is my book. I love this. This book was made especially for me. <laughs> uh, let's go ahead and dive into the synopsis. In Chapter 3, a side mission to track a shadowy figure has Wade, Mora, Bonvalain, and Bidikar taking readers on a twisted time travel tale of Titanic tenure. Ooh. In, a, in an attempt to get to the bottom of the mystery, Robin the Boy Wonder and the Supergirl of Krypton venture back in time to China circa 1600 BC, running headfirst into the ancient superheroes known as the House of G. Meanwhile... Superman and Batman are losing a race against time to save their fellow superheroes from the schemes of a new villain, one simply known as the Devil Neja. Yeah, sounds like a recipe for an incredible issue for me. I'm very, very excited. This is a blockbuster week for books. Let's go ahead and recap that. We got New Mutants, number 25, Iron Fist, number 3, Immortal X-Men, number 2, Nightwing, number 92, X-Men Red number two, and Batman Superman World's Finest number three. Oh man, I cannot wait to get to my LCS. This is going to be a great week for comics. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up. If this is your first time joining us on the Geeksplained podcast and you like what I do here, feel free to subscribe to the podcasting platform of your choice and give us a rating and review. We drop new episodes every single Wednesday, and honestly, ratings, reviews, and especially subscriptions really does help me out and really helps the podcast out in this weird podcasting algorithm space. Kind of raises our stock up and gets us out into the orbit of listeners just like you. And if you give us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, whatever they want to call it, I will read your review here live on the podcast. You can write whatever you want. I will be forced to read it. As long as you give me those five stars, the sky's the limit. And you'll be able to join the likes of our Red 13, including Seafire ND, Josh from Panels to Pixels, Matt Draper, Burrito Man 88, Doug from For Every Kind of Geek, Don Swanson, That Guy Brian, Mouth Dork, Dallas Meeks, Amazing Spider Fan, Alok and AZ, Sass, and Jedi Jesse 20. I want to say a huge thank you to these fine folks for their reviews, and I cannot wait to hear yours. If you want to be part of our Geeksplain mailbag, if you have a question for me, a comment, you want to make a request for the show, maybe you want some recommendations on something we haven't covered yet on the podcast, feel free to email me 
Send your emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. Just put mailbag in the subject header and I will read it here on the podcast. Also, if you want to keep up to date with the podcast, if you want to follow us, if you want to participate in polls that decide future episodes, maybe you just want to shoot the shit on the latest geeky news with me, you can feel free to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at GeeksplainedPod. That's at GeeksplainedPod. And finally, make sure you tune in every single Friday for the Geeksplained Book Club. I, alongside my amazing friends, Malcolm Russell Nelson and, of course, Jacob Brown, are going through every single issue of every single volume of Ultimate Spider-Man. This week, we are going to be diving into volume 20. We are rounding the bend here. We are heading into the home stretch of the initial Bendis Ultimate Spider-Man run, and it is only going to get crazy easier from here if you haven't yet go back in the archives catch up we've done 19 volumes so far of the initial 22 of the bendis and bagley run though now we've switched on over to a brand new artist you want to find out who that is if you haven't read the book already go check out the book club so make sure you tune in for that last but not least i want to say a huge thank you to our guest for this week Patrick Willems. I have been a huge fan of Patrick's for a very long time, so this was kind of a bucket list thing for me to get him on the show. And next week, we are heading into the finale. The finale of X-May 2022, and it is going to go with a bang. We're going to be covering the first X-Men comic that I ever read, which is bonkers to say... Age of Apocalypse. The Geek Explain Spotlight for the month of May is on the Age of Apocalypse, and I will be joined by David Busing of the Comic Book Herald and My Marvelous Year podcast. We had a wonderful conversation. Cannot wait to share it with you. So tune in for that next week. Same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you so much for listening. Everybody stay safe, and we will see you next time.